0: This is Scott Becker with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. Thrilled today to be joined by Dr. James Keller. Dr. Keller is the Chief Medical Officer at the Advocate Aurora Lutheran General Hospital. And Lutheran General is one of their flagship hospitals, a magnificent institution in the greater Chicago area. He also has a role in maternal and fetal medicine throughout the system. He's, I believe, an OB-GYN by background, but he'll tell us more about his career and the transition between leadership and being a physician and more. Dr. Keller, can you take a moment and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about Advocate Aurora and your role?
1: Okay. Well, thanks, Scott, and it's uh, great to be here. So I'm originally from Detroit, uh, now live locally here in the Chicagoland area. Um, I did undergrad at University of Michigan and then went to medical school at Michigan State University and did a residency in obstetrics and gynecology in Detroit at Sinai Hospital of Detroit and then moved to Chicago um, to do my fellowship in maternal fetal medicine at Northwestern University. So right out of that in 1990, I came to Lutheran General Hospital before was part of advocate really to focus on a clinical practice. And then as things go, especially being involved in a subspecialty, you know, and being a faculty member, uh, took on some responsibilities in graduate medical education, and then slowly just, Took on more and more um, institutional roles within Lutra in general. And then when it became part of the advocate healthcare system, took on some more system roles and medical, medical group roles. Um, as you know, Advocate is, uh, I think it's about the 12th largest not for profit healthcare system in the country, um, recently merged with the Aurora healthcare system to, to um, form Advocate Aurora. And uh, Lutheran General, as you said, uh, is one of the larger, more complex hospitals within the system. It's a quaternary care teaching hospital. Um, And my role here, again, is as chief medical officer, uh, basically being responsible for all of the clinical activity that's performed by our medical staff. And then um, I'm really lucky to also be able to participate in a system-wide role um, in maternal fetal medicine.
0: So take a moment. I mean, you had this this one tremendous transition from being a practicing full-time physician to leadership. You've been at really the same institution for 30 plus years, which is remarkable. A different and more difficult question. Were you ever able to transition from being a Detroit and Michigan sports fan to being a Chicago sports fan? Was that impossible to do?
1: Uh, it's not. In certain, in certain endeavors, it is impossible. Uh, it certainly wasn't impossible as far as the Lions were concerned, but it, it helped having two sons who were rabid Chicago sports fans. So I'm not one of these people that has to pick one or the other. So still a Detroit fan by heart, but also a big fan of all the Chicago teams.
0: Oh, well, fantastic. And talk about the transition over the years. I mean, I, I know you Personally, as a very, very good person, a very nice guy, a really smart person, talk about the transition from sort of, um, you know, leadership or practice, core practice to leadership, to, to both in the system and also locally. Talk about that transition, what that was like as a professional to start to transition from full-time practicing physician into leadership.
1: So I think when I look at and a lot of um, young emerging leaders ask me this question, this question, you know, how, you know, what's your what was your journey like, and how did you get here? And I, I, think that for people of my generation, most of the time the transition into leadership is mainly organic. So you start, and I don't think anybody says on their day on day one that they're going to be the chief medical officer but you you get a little bit of responsibility and hopefully you do you take that responsibility and you execute on it well and it's noticed and at the same time you realize sort of the advantages of being involved in leadership so you know we're not taught this in in medical school or maybe they are a little bit now but it's sort of our the ability to transition from caring for one person at a time which is awfully rewarding to being able to provide care, you know, at, at, at a population level. So whether it be, you know, being a department chair and being responsible for 4,000 deliveries a year, or having a system role in maternal-fetal health where you're then ultimately responsible for about 20,000 to 30,000 deliveries per year, and then you realize that the impact that you can have, um, and also it's a, you realize that. You you owe something to the institution, like you said. I've been here for 30 years. I've, I always thought I've been an advocate longer than it was advocate, but um, you realize as you get older that it's time again, not only to pay back to the healthcare system and the physicians and team members that you work with, but also the communities that you serve. And,
0: and, and talk about you've you've dealt with so many interesting issues over the years, both in practice and leadership. Obviously, COVID nineteen a a really uh, unusual period of time. Well, first tell us, what are you seeing with COVID-19 currently? Are, are we starting to see a surge in the greater Chicago area or not so bad yet? What are you starting to see there? And, and then then more so after that, I'll talk to you about what parts of your career have been particularly interesting or fulfilling?
1: So, you know, the, the COVID thing has been an interesting journey and it, it sometimes I think it's, it started five years ago as opposed to 18 months ago. Um, it seems like it's been with us so long. So right now we we are seeing a, a little bit of a surge. It's not like back in you know last April or last May where we you know we're up to 170 to 200 people and worried about PPE and testing and those are things that we we can put aside aside for a while. But right now I think there's a couple of things that we're dealing with with COVID that are a little bit different. There was a little bit of excitement along with the nervousness and the support of the community when COVID first started. And now we have team members that are really um, are uh, are really approaching burnout, and resilience is a much bigger issue not only amongst physicians but amongst all of our our nurses and our support staffs. And um, so, even though we're dealing with a smaller COVID burden, we're dealing with that COVID burden while we are also trying to play catch up in providing care to the community. So our volumes within the hospital are are higher than they've ever been. Um, The other issue that we have to deal with is the issue of compassion fatigue, which I have to say that both at the physician level and at the team member level is something that that, um, our professionals are really doing a good job of avoiding, but we realize that the majority of the patients that we're seeing in the hospital and in the intensive care unit are, are unvaccinated and could have avoided being here but it doesn't deter us from the care that we provide. So I think that's what's different about now is the fact that it's COVID on top of everything else that we're doing, um, including the delay in care, which certainly had an impact on health outcomes. At the beginning of the the COVID pandemic, I think most of us in leadership felt the same way. We, We vacillated between the importance of the work that we were doing, Um, to the fact that I think many of us went home and said, are are we up for this? You know, am I the right person for this? And I think uh, many of us, when we shared that we all had similar feelings, were we're helped by by that.
0: Right. This compassion fatigue, you see so much of it on sort of social media and other places, like a close, close friend, a wonderful human being had expressed the other day, compassion fatigue, particularly aimed at sort of like, empathy fatigue at aimed at people that have chosen not to get vaccinated and then have a higher risk and put more stress in the health system. How do you manage some of those emotions that people have on the compassion fit fatigue? How do you manage some of those issues?
1: So I think the first thing is that we we talk about it now, and and we used to not. And it's one thing when we talk about it with each other and we we come up with strategies, not only how to deal with it personally, but also how to deal with it um, with those that that we can lead. But in reality, um, we deal with with self-inflicted illness not uncommonly. We um, and we never deviate from the compassionate care that we provide. If somebody should um, using lung cancer, you know, do we treat somebody with less compassion who has lung cancer because they were a smoker versus somebody who wasn't? And no matter what your personal feelings are, when you're face to face with that patient and when you're providing care it doesn't make a difference. And I see that in our, I'm just, um, again, always impressed with the professionalism of, of our physicians and of our team members that they put, they put those feelings aside, but there's no doubt um, again, that it, it, it's something that we have to deal with, but it helps that we talk about it and we recognize it and we acknowledge that
0: it exists. And, and I think that is a great point because we really don't, with people that have lung cancer, we know it's self-inflicted wound. We don't not have compassion for them, and so the concept of trying to stay compassionate and empathetic, even with so much stress and so much exhaustion, and nurses and doctors putting themselves at risk, and everybody in hospital in hospital systems, uh, I think your point is really well taken. Dr. Carroll, talk about you know a couple of the more interesting things you've seen over the years, or things that you've been particularly satisfied with, or impacted you. Any thoughts there?
1: So, yeah, I I think that, um, first of all, it, it's just uh, health is just such a great field to be in, and I, I think you recognize that. And it's so interesting to look back on, you know, I've been a physician, an attending physician for 31 years, but probably started medical school close to 40 years ago. And so to think of some of the, yeah, I think there's two things. You can look at sort of the the technical advancements, the, you know, when I was a resident in labor and delivery, we didn't have an ultrasound machine in labor and delivery and um, not everybody got an ultrasound during the pregnancy. And now our ability to to image the fetus and to interrogate um, for some genetic issues um, to and a lot of our prenatal diagnosis. So um, it, looking at all of the medical advancements, the fact that cancer now is, is not an immediate death sentence and many cancers have not cured um, can be mitigated for a while. So, the scientific advancements are are incredible. But the other thing is is that our focus on population health and our focus on healthcare disparities and social determinants and things that we didn't really talk about ten years ago, and in um, part being part of a large healthcare system. They can focus on it is, has been a great experience for me so I think it's we look at things at least I look at things in two different ways one are the, the technical advancements and the second is are doing things to improve the access to these advancements to greater segments of the population especially the
0: disadvantaged and, and talk about that you also work in the maternal and fetal area and, and there's a situation where a health equity I mean, African Aurora is as good as anybody at, at health equity and diversity and working on DE and I. As good a system as, as, as there is. Talk though about the disparities in health equity in maternal and fetal medicine, traditionally in our country, and, and how trying to address some of those.
1: Yeah, it's um, it, it's it's been interesting for me to be able to look at things from a system level, but to also look through the lens of, of maternal care. And we know that I, there's probably, as you mentioned, there's no greater disparity in a mortality rate than the difference between the mortality rate in a, in a black mother and a, in a white mother. And um, as much as we try to focus on risk adjustment and could it be um, education, could it be um, financial situations, we have to face the fact that a lot of it is is based on a, a, a foundation of systemic racism. So I think one of the things that that we do, at least in the maternal area, and again, I'm proud to be able to work not only with Advocate, but with the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine, is to focus on the eliminating systemic racism from, from care. And I again, identifying that it's not just you can't throw money at this problem and you can't just throw extra clinics at this problem. You have to really attack the the basis or the foundation of why these disparities exist. So we do, we have a lot of training, um, again, both at the professional level, but also at the system level and addressing, you know, um, unconscious bias in care and things like that. And and why um, and why is a black woman's pain addressed differently than a white woman's pain? And we've got people way smarter
0: than me working on that issue, Scott. Well, the, the only person I know that's smarter than the both of us, there's actually a ton of people that are smarter than me, but the only person I know that's in the same category as you is our friend uh, David. So we, we appreciate your thoughts in this and this concept of people way smarter than you working on this, but there aren't that many. You're actually a brilliant, brilliant person and, and I appreciate your, empathy and care for what you do, uh, not just being a great physician, but deeply caring about the entire community. Um, Dr. Keller, always a pleasure to get to visit with you. Um, Thank you for um, joining us today on the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you, Scott.